0: So we get to begin, officially we get to begin the celebration of Christmas. Are any of you excited about that? Any of you christmas aholics here? Yeah, a lot of you are, I know you are. It's a good thing a lot of us enjoy this time of year. But today is the first day of Advent, as we heard the Benedetti family remind us. Uh, Of course, Advent means uh, coming or arrival. It's the celebration of, of God becoming man of the advent of God on earth when he came to visit us many many years ago and of course we know the reason that God became a man <clears throat> is because he desires to save all mankind right that's why he came it's required of him to come but uh, the emphasis here that I want to make is on all mankind uh, he loves all mankind it says this in Luke chapter 2 And the angel saying to them, that is to the shepherds, you're familiar with this, right? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. All people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, a Savior of all people. Are you happy about that? I know I am. God doesn't care if these people are black or white or brown or blue. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care if they're smart or dull, rich or poor, um, elite or or not. He came because he loves all people. And this this angelic announcement in Luke 2 came, of course, to poorly low shepherds, if you recall. Not kings, not the elite, but to the poorest of the poor. The announcement came. Humans, on the other hand, struggle accepting all kinds of people. Hasn't it been evident to you, even in our own country, that we struggle with this, <laughs> especially lately? We've got divisions in race, religion, socioeconomic levels all over the place. We tend to withhold acceptance of other humans until certain criteria are met. We, we favor people who are like us or who we want to be accepted by. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that our default? Um, We we resist the unfamiliar and tend to reject the social outcast. Um, This is a serious problem, especially when it finds its way into the church, where uh, such barriers theoretically don't exist. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if in the church we could walk through these doors and all these things went away? But they don't. Today we're going to cover James's fourth test of authenticity, if you remember. book of James is a collection of tests of authenticity. How genuine is your faith is the question that the book of James answers. So we have this being the fourth test found in, in James chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. James chapter 2, and I'm going to cover verses 1 through 13 today. And the fourth test, just to let you know what it is, is simply this, your view of people. What is your view of people? If you have an authentic faith, it'll be something specific. We've seen the previous three tests, your view of trials, your view of God, and your view of God's word. Now we come to the fourth here in James chapter two, your view of people. And you notice that James begins his new section there by saying the familiar transitional words, my brothers. Every time you come across those in the book of James, he's marking a new section or a new test of authentic faith. I think most of us know by now that not accepting people is problematic for Christians, right? Um, we, We know enough about the Bible and enough about Christianity to know how God expects us to treat one another. So follow along as I read these verses here in the beginning of James chapter two, and then I'm gonna spend some time unpacking and explaining them to you, because they're important. Follow. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you let me in a word of prayer as we ask God to guide our time together in his word? Father, as we come now to the the preaching of your word, I ask that your spirit would be active in this room, particularly in our hearts, that we may understand the the word read and preached. I pray that your spirit would remove any obstacles that may be between us and and understanding between us and a deepening relationship with God, with you, our Savior. I pray now that as we uh, dig into these important words, In James 2, that you would be merciful to us and guide us into all truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that you're uh, interested at this point in hearing about this fourth test of authentic faith, that being how do you treat people? How do you view people? This is an important test, as they all are, but James wants us to consider this personally. Not just corporately, you know, as church, how are we doing? That's a good question to ask. But personally, how are you doing in this regard? Uh, if God has regenerated your soul, uh, which is the test, uh, has God actually regenerated you, me? If He has done so, um, if He has given us a new spiritual heart, then our view of people. And the way we treat them will reflect the way God views people and the way God treats people. Does that seem logical to you? Uh, As I said last week, if God is our Father and we are his children, then we will love what he loves and values what he values. In this case, people. Um, When when God regenerates our heart, it's a heart of impartiality. And and so for those of us who are saved, it's, it's the new natural, the new norm to think of and treat people like God does. Um, So this new heart is colorblind. It's socioeconomically blind. Let's let's begin by looking at verses one through four. And I've titled these verses, The Favoritism Problem. You'll see these notes in your bulletin. In order for this test to have its full effect on our hearts and minds, we need to think seriously and examine our attitudes and desires. Think about your attitudes and desires as they relate to people in your life. Um, this time of year is a great time to think through this. Um, for example, do you look forward to that invitation to a socially exclusive Christmas party, knowing that you'll get to rub shoulders with so-and-so at that party? Does your heart skip a beat when you receive a Christmas card from that person you'd like to impress? Does your Christmas card list include those who are in a lower socioeconomic stratum? Now, I don't know if this room is abnormally quiet or my hearing is going bad or worse, I'm not sure, but I think these things are importantly true among us, aren't they? As James begins to lay out this test of authentic faith, he he says that claiming faith In the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is incompatible with partiality. Um, Right off the bat, uh, James pits the gospel of Jesus Christ against the attitude that would favor some people over another. Uh, Any attitude, of course, that contradicts the love that God has towards all people reveals the true condition of the heart. So as you think about these things, the goal here, the Holy Spirit's goal, James's goal, my goal, is to have you examine the condition of your heart. James is speaking to those claiming to be Christians. And so I'm speaking to you who claim to be Christians. The power of James's command here to show uh, no favoritism lies in the fact that he calls them believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is, I think, very personal. James is saying, hey, you people who claim Jesus, think about this for a second. So the gist of it is this. My brothers, if I were speaking um, for James, I would be saying this. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who lowered himself in poverty and humility to save your soul, please don't show favoritism. That's what Pastor James is saying. Paul also had similar concerns, didn't he? He said this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Yeah, the Lord of glory became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, poverty is important to Christ, Jesus did not haltingly consider our social status before he left the glory of heaven to minister to us, did he? Aren't you glad he didn't? Uh, maybe I shouldn't go down there. Those people are awfully low on the social economic standard level. I'm so happy he didn't do that. You see, James wants us to, to think about our theology. Does what we believe about who we are and who Christ is and who actually everybody is, who everybody is, change how we treat them? Does our doctrine and theology actually impact our lives? Anybody can say anything, right? But do we live it? And, and this, is, <laughs> this is the penetrating reality of this whole book. It is so practical. James isn't going to allow us to to wiggle out of this thing. He wants us, this Holy Spirit wants us to genuinely examine our own hearts, our own, our own likes and dislikes, our behavior. Um, does the basic message of the Bible and the example of Christ actually have an effect on how we treat people? So let's look at the principle in verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he says. The word partiality here in verse 1 literally means this. This is interesting. Receiving the face. That's what the, the word actually means, literally. Receiving the face. Now, imagine what that might mean. It's a focus on the externals. I'm going to receive you because of what I can see, is the word for partiality. Based on your clothing, based on who you run with, based on your car, I'm going to make a evaluation of you, whether or not I want to be with you or not. That's what the word partiality means here in verse 1. Um, God never does that, aren't you thankful? You know, if you're a rich person, you might say, I don't care. <laughs> uh, but to the average person, we're very thankful that God doesn't treat us according to externals. He says this in Romans 2:11. Simply enough, for God shows no partiality. <laughs> That's pretty clear, isn't it? Um, most of us can greatly appreciate this truth. Let's listen to how Paul describes your conversion and mine. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Were any of you geniuses when you came to Christ? Maybe I should ask, this. Are any of you geniuses now? (laughs) Listen Listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And yet here we are saved. Wow. The gospel is the great leveler, isn't it? Available to everyone equally who who simply believe in the Savior. So here's the principle. God's people, those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, are to imitate God their Father in relationship with others. Can you honestly say that the way you treat people... Not just those in your circle, and we have to think a little broader here, but everybody that you encounter, you treat them the way God would have you treat them. Do you think of them the way God would have you think of them? Jesus Christ is glorious, and the, in fact, the creator of glory, which obviously makes Him glorious. But He is the Lord of glory. The Apostle John said this about him in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, that is God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. <clears throat> Listen to this, glory is the only Son from Father, full of grace and truth. We didn't see his glory in his magnificence. What, what did the Apostles see? They saw a guy who had no place to lay his head. This guy had, who had no income. We saw a guy that lived and was raised in Nazareth. That's the place across the tracks in our vernacular. That's who they saw. And they said, John said at least, we saw his glory. How is the poverty of Christ glorious? Well, think of it just for a second in comparison to his actual glory. His, his actual Exaltation. And lowering himself, condescending, so that we could know him. How glorious is that? And then in chapter 12, verse 41, John says this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of Christ, yes. In Isaiah 6, chapter 1, he speaks of entering the temple of God and seeing the high and exalted one with his, the train of his robe filling the temple. He was speaking of Christ. John said Isaiah was speaking of Christ. Jesus is glorious. Even though he was glorious, he was impartial towards people. Listen to Matthew 22, 16. And they, this is, this is Jesus' um, enemies. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So, the, the enemies of Christ sent some envoys to Jesus, and they said this to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, if your enemy says that about you, it's <laughs> that's pretty impressive, isn't it? So there's the principle. Let's look at the example, verses 2 through 4. This is... This, this may not relate directly, the, at least the example, to us. I hope it doesn't. I hope we don't require the, the people who have less income uh, from us to sit at our feet in our church. You might want to check right now if there's someone sitting down there. Um, but the, I hope this isn't the case here. We don't have assigned seating based on income. Uh, I know some of you sit in the same place every week and you think there ought to be a plaque there, but... I'm happy to see some of you today just decided to sit someplace else, but uh, no. This, this example is powerful. Evidently, it was a real problem in James's day. <laughs> James uses the evidence of favoritism in church worship service, but the principle applies to all of us here in relationship to being in Christ in the church. The different ways we treat people based on externals is the focus of James's example. Do you, do you treat people differently uh, because of what you know about them? Uh, for example, if, if they have fine clothes versus shabby clothes, do you treat them differently? Um, in our day, this would include, you know, knowing what they drive, nice versus a junker. Which um, fine clothes versus Kirkland Sigs. People have talked to me about my Kirkland Sigs. I, I love them. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, we have the complicating issue of being able to live on credit, don't we, in our day? We like to fool each other because we know that having certain things and putting on certain aura garners certain favors not the least of which is social acceptance. Let's let's next look at verses five through seven, the favoritism contrast. I love this, these few verses here. This is a contrast, of course, between God and the world, between God and those who claim Christ and really aren't following him. You will notice, if you haven't already, that James always gives a contrast when he's considering the tests of authentic faith. You've noticed that yet? We're in test four. Every test of faith, he presents as a contrast. Those who really know Christ should act like this, but sometimes they don't. So, and it may be because they just fail occasionally, or maybe because they don't know Christ. He's always laying out this contrast. He does it in the, the key passage of this book, James 3, verses 13 through 18. He makes a clear contrast between those. With authentic faith who choose the wisdom that is above versus those who choose the wisdom of the world. Now, Which one are you going to follow? We'll get to that in more detail here in the weeks to come, but um, each test of authentic faith throughout this book gives the reader a contrast to choose between. And it's no different here in the fourth test. Is your view of people like God's view or is it like the world's view? Are you interested in pleasing God with how you treat people or are you interested in Garnering the, the favor of man in how you treat people. And so let's look at this. I'm going I'm to begin <coughs> with um, James' second. And that is how the rich people treat others. How rich people treat others. And of course this is a generalization. There are nice rich people. Um, but James is making a generalization for emphasis. And we see this in verses 6 and 7. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? James wants us to think logically about favoritism here. He demonstrates that it is socially irrational to treat people badly and fawn over rich people. And he explains it here. He goes, they're the ones who generally mistreat you. Why would you try to impress them when the next time they see you will be in court? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the ones who, who are generally mistreating people and cause social problems. They're the ones who belittle those around them to gain an advantage. They do everything they can to keep the social strata intact. Those are the rich people. It's the high and mighty who disparage Christ. They, they do this because they know God opposes the proud. Showing favoritism is socially irrational, James is saying. He also says it's spiritually irrational. Look at verse 5. Back up to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Evidently, God prefers saving poor people. Now, if you're thinking for a second, you might think, wait a minute. Isn't that favoritism? Just reverse favoritism? Well, God isn't necessarily f- favoring people that are financially poor. That would be favoritism. But, but God is favoring those that are generally poor because with poverty generally comes what? Humility. That's what God favors. His humble people versus prideful people this is what God values listen to Deuteronomy 10 17 for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords the great the mighty the awesome God who is not partial and does not take a bribe you can't you can't impress God at least with money (laughs) he opposes the proud he gives grace to the humble Partiality is inconsistent with the purpose and plan of God in choosing the poor of this world to be spiritually rich. James says that the poor are spiritually advantaged here. Jesus chose to be born to a poor woman in an obscure town. Have you considered Jesus' genealogy lately? It demonstrates his love and care for all types. There were kings and peasants, prophets and prostitutes, rich and poor, in his family tree. And he actually got to design his family tree. Is that how you would do it? You've got to have representation here. I need a prostitute and a priest. You've got to have a king and a pauper. This is what was going through God's mind when he planned the ages. He was a people's savior. Aren't you thankful? Jesus said this early in his ministry, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, by the way, he was quoting it up from Isaiah about the Savior. But Jesus said in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set it liberally, those who were oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's to the outcasts that the gospel comes. God is absolutely impartial in his dealings with people. Jesus, in fact, if you remember the gospels, ministered to everyone, regardless of social or financial status. He cared for all, indifferent to whether they were moral or immoral. He spent time with the high priest and the common worshiper. He had dealings with criminals and judges, religious and irreligious, educated and ignorant. God did not care who they were, which is why this is a basic element of the gospel. Paul says this in Galatians 3 There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. There's no distinction. Now, back to verses 5 through 7. They point out a massive inconsistency of believers who don't follow God's example in impartiality. Can you see the inconsistency? Claiming Christ but not wanting to value what he values? Partiality is inconsistent with loving your neighbors as yourself. Uh, which is the second great commandment. In Philippians 2, Paul said, as we heard this morning... That we're to consider others as more important than ourselves. Even those people who wear shabby clothes, even those people who have no jobs, even those people who can't speak English, those people? Seems like it. Verse five, James concludes that God's favor is simply to those who love him. (laughs) Wow, it's not to those who are rich. God's favor is not on those who are smart, who drive Mercedes Benz or live in nice homes. No, God promises the kingdom to those who simply love Him. That's the only requisite. There's there's no ethnic requirements for entry, no levels of income requirements, no educational levels, or any form of distinction. Whoever will may come. Have you heard that before? Listen to Romans 10, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all of them, bestowing his riches on all who will simply call on him. As James drives home this poor, rich, rich, poor paradox, he's stressing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's nothing that's gonna give you an advantage when you come to Jesus. And so if this is the case, it's absurd to be partial towards anyone. All should be treated equally, all beings created in the image of God. And so discrimination or favoritism is spiritually irrational as it is socially irrational. Um, Spirit—it's Showing favoritism is spiritually irrational because God accepts all, rich and poor, it's socially irrational because they are the ones abusing the system and manipulating the circumstances to gain an advantage over poor people. John Calvin said this, to fawn over one's oppressors is strangely irrational. <laughs> Why would we favor people who oppress us? Commenting on James's words here. Treating people like God treats people is a sure sign that you have authentic faith. Here, that's why this is a test. So let's look at verses eight through thirteen now. I know we're covering a lot of ground, which is abnormal for you, uh, or maybe you should, I should say for me. Um, but uh, let's look at the favoritism solution. And by the way, this doesn't mean we're not going to come back here at some point. <clears throat> don't think you're. Don't think you're free. Um, the favoritism solution. Look at verses 8 through 13. I'm going to read them again for you. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here we have the the solution to favoritism. In case you see this issue in your life, here's how God would have you solve it. Here's how God would have us solve it as a church. Um, Verses 8 through 13, believe it or not, is the side door to the gospel. The royal law, do you see that there in verse 8? If you fulfill the royal law, what's he talking about there? It's the sum and substance of the complete word of God, as as Jesus summarized in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other. This is is the, the summary of the law, the royal law. James focuses here on the neighbor part of it because that's the portion of the law that's being broken when favoritism is taking place. So how can you truly love others as Christ commanded if you're favoring one and neglecting and mistreating others? James says the only solution here is get a grasp of the gospel. First John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. You, you are born of God. You, you're, you're renewed in Christ if you actually love. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if, if you're a believer and you just cannot accept someone because of their clothing or where they live or the language they speak or don't speak, What would James and John and Jesus and Paul and every New Testament author say? One of the the first elements of the gospel is this, acknowledging sin. Isn't it? This is is what is a basic entry-level reality, acknowledging your sin. In, In verse 10, James said that breaking one law makes you a lawbreaker. If you break one link in the chain, the chain is broken. And this is where James sneaks in the gospel. In these two verses, 10 and 11, James chooses two of the most serious sins according to man. At least in the Old Testament, both of these required the death penalty. Murder and adultery. If you lived in Old Testament times and you committed either one of those sins, you were put to death. But amazingly, James puts favoritism in the same camp as those two heinous sins. His point is that whether you think partiality is a minor sin or not, if you do this evil, you've broken the whole law. The chain is broken. Doesn't matter which sin breaks the chain, the fact is, the chain's broken. It doesn't work to say, well, at least I haven't killed anyone. As it relates to being saved, it doesn't matter if you've killed someone or simply favored somebody. Have you ever had the attitude of favoritism? Have you ever reveled in the coveted Christmas card? Have you ever turned away from the socially low to accommodate the socially elite? You know, at the judgment, God isn't going to add up your good deeds and measure them against your sins or bad deeds and make judgment based on which weighs more or which scale has more. No, if you break the law of God, you will be condemned as a lawbreaker no matter how you broke God's law. And James makes it obvious here that simple partiality, simple favoritism is a breaking of the law. And so, if we fall into this category, we stand condemned, according to Scripture. This is a crushing blow to those of us who think that we're piling up good works to counter our bad ones. Jesus said this, which we heard earlier also from Matthew 5, verse 48, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That standard's not fair, is it? No. But here's where the gospel becomes so important to us. No one is able to fulfill the whole law, are they? Except Christ, of course. All of us stand condemned because at some level or another we have sinned in this area of partiality. But listen to the good news just from Romans 5. Therefore, verse 1 says... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, should we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, that's the good news of those who embrace Christ. You might be asking, well, how does <laughs> how does knowing how God saves people solve favoritism? How am I going to scour that out of my life? Well, let's think for a second, if we can, what is the content of the gospel? What does the gospel accomplish in us? Look at verses 12 and 13 again of James 2. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Why... Why did he add the word so before speak and act? Why didn't he just say speak and act? Why did he say so speak, so act? Why the overemphasis here? I think he does this to hammer home the point of the present active imperatives that these words are. Speaking and acting. They're, that's the, f- the, the form of these verbs. They, they, it must be a way of life. They're, it's a present active imperative. It's... it's a way of life for the genuine believer. Keep on speaking, keep on acting in the reality of the fact of the coming judgment. The judgment of the law of liberty. What is that? That sounds, I thought we weren't going to be judged For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, um, we're not going to be judged as it relates to salvation. We're, we're saved in Christ, right? We're, we're, not, <laughs> we're not working our way to heaven here. That's impossible. So what's James talking about? The law of liberty is the gospel. We, we must speak and act as those who have actually embraced the gospel because it has freed us. It's freed us from slavery of, of that social ladder climbing, from judging others or being judged. The law of liberty frees us to obey and serve God. That is, the gospel frees us to obey and serve God because we have a new heart. We can treat one another as equals who have all received grace in the same way. We no longer gain our self-worth from looking down on others or from fearing what they may think of us. We all come to Christ through that same door, the door of grace. So I can accept you and you can accept me. Not based on what I wear or drive. We no longer live in fear of what people think of us because we're accepted in Christ. We put all that worldly acceptance stuff behind us. And look at verse 13. It helps explain this judgment idea. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Sounds a little gospelish, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a reason for that. The one possessing possessing authentic faith will be the one who shows mercy, the one who's grace-driven in their relationships. We know that mercy is a character trait that comes with a regenerated heart, right? Judgment is not. Judgment without mercy is reserved for those who have not shown mercy to others. Those who don't show mercy to others have never experienced mercy themselves, And so it's natural for the world to be judgmental. It's natural for the world to show no mercy. It's natural for the world to show favoritism. Because they know nothing else. So don't be surprised if the world doesn't favor you. (laughs) They never will. This is really a basic reality of the gospel. The alarming thing is that James... That James says basically this, favoritism is evidence of an unmerciful spirit. He's saying that a life characterized by favoritism identifies a person who doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because they don't know mercy. They've never experienced grace when we experience the grace and mercy of God, we can extend that to others freely. You know, the, the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus spoke or taught in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, is helpful in understanding James's thought here. Um, what is, you remember that, that parable, the unmerciful servant? That servant owed something equivalent to $20 million to his master. He couldn't pay it back, and so the master was going to throw him in jail, and the servant fell on his knee and pleaded for mercy, and and guess what? He was granted mercy. His creditor granted him grace, forgave his debt. Then what did that unmerciful servant do? He walks out and immediately grabs a person who owes him one one hundredth of what he owed his creditor and starts choking him and gets mad at him and takes him to court and throws him into prison the one who just received mercy so he had no concept of forgiveness of mercy of grace and this is what the master said to him this is jesus's words teaching through this parable Matthew 18, 32-35, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay his debt. So also my heavenly father it will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Wow. So, Jesus is saying, friends, if you've truly, genuinely experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness, it will be in your heart to extend that to others. If you cannot extend grace and mercy um, to the people in your life, it's evidence that you have not received it yourself. You see why this is a test of authentic faith? Wow. Wow. This is, this is uh, really important at any time of year, but I think particularly, uh, cogent for this time of year, it's it's so poignant and helpful as we head into this time of year when uh, we're all about relationships and you know that kind of thing during the Christmas season. I want to I want to just challenge you, Christian friends, to uh, step outside your normal circle of uh, interaction this Christmas season. Instead of you know palin with the regulars, how about include people who aren't in that group? How about intentionally moving outside that circle and and extending grace and mercy to people who we g- generally don't associate with. We have chances all around us this time of year to do that. This church is offering you a couple opportunities in the near future. December 15th, we're going to Othello to minister grace and mercy to the poor there, the Miztech folks who Josh and Sarah are working with. Can you do that? How about the homeless? You know, we think, oh, they deserve it. Well, maybe you deserve it. You know, I think we all do, right? And so uh, we have a chance to go show the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of Christ Jesus to the homeless here in Yakima on Christmas Eve. We're going to have our own Christmas Eve service here at 530 and at 7, those of you who are willing. We're going to drive over to Camp Hope, which is in the back of the old Kmart there, and uh, serve them some hot coffee and cookies and um, give them a gift, share the gospel with them. I'm going to preach a little 10 to 15 minute sermonette. Jeremy's going to play a few songs, Christmas songs, and then we're going to go home. We can do that. And we can love people who aren't in our sphere. This morning as we come to the table um, the Lord's Supper uh, I think there's probably nothing more instructive in this department than the Lord's Supper uh, Paul said that this we share one loaf as one family one loaf of bread um, one drink one cup um, which is why some denominations have one loaf of bread and we all tear off that one piece, one, one piece of bread, and they all share one cup. But, you know, we have some concerns about each other's health, and so we don't do that. We, we you know, allow you to be uh, partial um, in the Lord's Supper here. But this is a great time to consider... Do we really accept one another? We are in the family of God. Do we accept one another as such? As we, as we call you forward this morning and and serve you the elements, I want you to consider that that we are all one family. We we're all participants in the grace of God equally. And there is, there is no one here who deserves it more than the next. And so think, allow this to be a time where you consider these things. And maybe if you need to repent of certain attitudes or actions, do that as you stand in line. And commit to a, a different Christmas season this year. Uh, elders, if you're here with me, would you please come? I'm going to Um, pray and I'm gonna read the words of institution from 1st Corinthians chapter 11 and then I'm gonna ask you if you would just come forward form two lines like we have done before if you know Christ if you claim Christ if you are trusting in his uh, forgiveness and his blood on Calvary for your sin I I encourage you to come forward Um, and if you feel well man Pastor John, the words you've said this morning just make me feel um, like I'm not, I'm not qualified for that. I don't deserve it. I would simply say you're right, you don't, <laughs> which is why you should come. Uh, if you trust Christ, you should be up here um, taking the Lord's Supper um, and doing business with your Savior. Let me read these words of institution, then I'll pray. The Apostle Paul said this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, Jesus broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. God, we acknowledge that we are sinners in so many different ways. Um, Obvious sins, not so obvious sins. uh, Sins of omission even, that where we neglect to reach out to those who aren't in our sphere. Um, God, forgive us of these things. We, We come acknowledging our sin but we come with hope knowing that that you have called us into your presence you've called us to the table so that you personally could minister your grace to us through these elements that remind us of you that feed us on your person so God as we as we come i pray that that our minds would be refreshed and our hearts encouraged as we consider the broken body of Christ represented in the broken bread and as we think of his blood spilt for our sins as we drink the cup. God bless us now in these things and we pray this in your name. Amen.